Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and this is Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. As a mom of four kids in New York City and a writer myself, I know all too well how short everyone is on time, so I'm here to help. I'm going to interview authors and writers of all types about their work, especially as it relates to parenting and family issues. Hopefully you can listen while doing 8 million other things and fall in love with these talented scribes and their fantastic books, essays, and songs like I have, plus get some tips on surviving parenthood. For more about me, you can check out my essays at zibbyowens.com. I'm here today with Lauren Smith Brody. Lauren is the founder of The Fifth Trimester, which is both a movement and a book called The Fifth Trimester, The Working Mom's Guide to Style, Sanity, and Big Success After Baby. Her work has been featured on Good Morning America, CNN.com, The Wall Street Journal, Forbes, and New York Family. Lauren has appeared recently in Talks by Google and on the Mother Birth podcast before coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Before launching the fifth trimester, Lauren worked for 16 years in magazine publishing, most recently as the executive editor of Glamour Magazine, a Condé Nast publication. Lauren lives in New York City now with her husband and her two young sons. Before I introduce Lauren, just a reminder that this episode is sponsored by Chloe's Fruit, the cool way to eat fruit. You can learn more at chloesfruit.com. So welcome, Lauren. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. Thanks for coming. Um, you're, we could spend the whole podcast talking about the movement in the fifth trimester and how amazing it is, but I want to talk about, um, this fantastic book first, because there's also, that's where it started. So thanks. Thank you. Material. Um, you did such an amazing job of describing how it felt to you to go back to work after 12 weeks and how ironic it was that when your son, Will, was starting to be happy and calm, then it was time for you to go back to work. Yeah. For those who haven't read the book, can you set the stage for us a little about how it felt to you? And can you discuss what you say in the book um, about what you said is kindly referred to as a hard time? <laughs> yes. I was being kind to myself yeah. by calling it a hard time. I was mostly a mess. Um, so I knew, obviously, when I was pregnant, I knew about the, the first three trimesters. The fourth trimester um, was something I learned about by reading Harvey Karp's book, The Happiest Baby on the Block, when I had Will, who's now nine. And he was, I thought he was... I didn't realize he was a fussy baby. He was totally a fussy baby. My mom kept trying to tell me that, and I was like, no, it's my fault. Um, anyway, <laughs> I soothed him with this this idea of the fourth trimester, which is recreate the feeling of the womb because human babies are, you know, by swaddling and all that, because human babies are actually born three months too early. And that was really helpful. But as I got throughout the book, as I was reading it, you know, he kept saying, Dr. Carp, get to 12 weeks, just get to 12 weeks and your baby will wake up to the world and will give something back to you and essentially will be the baby that I thought I was giving birth to. Um, and I just kept thinking, well, gosh, 12 weeks is when I go back to work. And I don't think I knew as deeply, certainly, as I do now how um, how privileged I was to even be able to take those 12 weeks. So they were not um, fully paid, but you know, I have a partner who's very supportive and who was around. I have parents who could come to town, you know, at the drop of a hat. Uh, we had enough money in the bank that I could take a few of those weeks unpaid and it was okay. And yet still 12 weeks was just definitely not enough time for me, but it was more than most American women are able to use. Um, the average amount of FMLA used is um, is 8.5 weeks and only 56% of American workers are even eligible for it. So anyway, but to get to the mess. So I came <laughs> back to work and part of me actually felt sort of steadied by being there because this was something I knew how to do. I wasn't brand new at my job the way I was brand new at motherhood, but I was brand new at being a working mom. It was my first day on the job. I was, you know, 
my day had a hard stop in a way that it never had before. Um, I definitely had to get home. We were lucky to have a nanny in our home, but I had to get home to her. I had to bring the breast milk home that I had pumped at work. <laughs> Otherwise, it was not, it was gonna you know she was gonna dip into the very small frozen stash I had in the freezer. She had to get home to her own family. It was just a whole layering on of stresses that I. I don't think I properly anticipated. So my goal with this book was to help women anticipate the fact that they are probably going to be back at work before they're physically and emotionally ready to be there, which is what I did end up discovering when I did a lot of research beyond my own experience. I interviewed more than 100 working moms who had kind of all approaches to work and motherhood and, um, and surveyed almost 800 and so what I found is that collectively, most people wish they had had more time, but also they just really wanted more support during that time coming back to work. In my own experience, I found that stumbling through was kind of the right thing for me to do. I was at that point at a senior enough position that it was okay for me to be a little bit transparent about what was hard. And what I found is that people actually came to me and thanked me because I was the first person they had seen struggle and yet still succeed and showed them that they would one day too. And I realized that, you know, even though I didn't feel like a particularly powerful moment in terms of my career, and I was not feeling super ambitious coming back to work at that moment, um, I actually did have cultural impact. And um, and that became a new way of kind of measuring success in my job for me. And eventually grew this idea of the fifth trimester, which I realized is simply when the working mom is born. And it's just a, it's another trimester. It's another developmental phase, only this one's for mom. It's awesome. Um, in the book, you cite a lot of statistics about how other countries have better mm-hmm. maternity and paternity leave policies. In fact, you reference all of countries. them, yeah. all other countries. All <laughs> you said except for these two countries, and then you're like, and there was this third country, but now they're even yeah, better no, they caught up. Um, so why? How did the U.S. end up with the policy it has? Not that we need a whole big history lesson. Yeah, but, no, you know, well. I think I, more than anything, so so, and, and the, the policy is really just one part of it, but the policy is a symptom of a larger, greater cultural problem we have, which is that there's just not a cultural appreciation around the transition to new parenthood, motherhood and fatherhood. Um, I think I think mostly, and this is just my own, mm-hmm. you know, theory, yep. I think mostly it's just that we're a really young country. I think that, you know, a lot of these other countries we look at, you know, in Europe in particular, are old and they have, you know, they have sort of the long lens perspective of being able to look back over many more generations than we do. And we still feel like as a country, we're still startup, you know, like every generation wants to lap the next, except that, and I think we're starting to feel this now, actually... Progress kind of halts if you don't actually give it a little time to breathe. And so if we were to build in better policies, including, you know, universal child care and, you know, I mean, there's there's almost no federal policy that doesn't impact being a good parent in some way. Um, if we were to do that, I think, you know, and studies show that it would ultimately impact the economy for the better. Um, but it takes taking a big collective deep breath yeah. and really forcing, you know, our leaders to to acknowledge that it's something that needs to be handled with law. I love how in the book you quote John Oliver saying, there's nothing we wouldn't do for moms apart from this one major thing. Right, exactly. <laughs> except for this so, one thing that launches them. Yeah. <laughs> um, can you talk about how going back to work when you weren't really ready affected your marriage? Um, you said, um, which I could totally relate to, <laughs> at the office, not that I go to an office, but at the office, I mostly kept it together. But at home, I picked fights with my husband over little things that were really about one big thing. He didn't feel as completely at the end of his rope as I did 24-7. Yeah. So it's funny. So much of that in the moment felt like 
I was doing something wrong or my husband was doing something wrong. And I've really come to learn by talking to all of these other moms that it's so much bigger than that. You know, it doesn't do any good to blame yourself or blame your spouse with whom you probably intended to have a totally equal partnership. Well, that gets a lot easier as the kids get older, but it is a larger, greater cultural problem. And so I think owning the fact that when you go back to work, if you're, if you go back to work or however you define work, like we all work, right? Like some of us work for paycheck, some of us don't work for paycheck, but we all work. Um, Owning the fact that you can have cultural impact in that moment by being open and honest is really helpful. But some of that also has to come back home with you. So you have to, if we want equality in the workplace, you really have to acknowledge the fact that you can't be a gatekeeper, that dad has to be allowed to help as well. You know, we have um, a real disparity in the amount of maternity leave and paternity leave that American moms and dads take. So even when men are entitled to take it, and, and they are, you know, they're entitled to just as much FMLA as you are, they tend not to, in part because they are paid more. We know about the pay gap. Um, but also because there's just this cultural idea that men's men's value, men are more valued in the workplace than women are. And so when dad takes less time and says, oh, I need to be at work, mm-hmm. it's just it's doubling down on that really erroneous idea. Um, so one thing that can really help, um, and I, I, we didn't, we weren't able to do this. My husband was in his residency um, when we had my first son, and he was finishing his residency when we had our second, and so his hours were nuts. I mean, and I was at that point actually the breadwinner because he was still in his training, um, so it was a lot of pressure, um, and it was pressure on him because he couldn't really be around and as involved as he wanted to when he was working week long overnight shifts. Like right. you know, it, that was just not not going to work. Um, So, you know, it is sometimes about baby steps. It's about, you know, saving like a couple of discrete duties that are actually for the dad or partner um, and saying, I'm not going to do this at all. I'm not even going to learn how to do it. You learn how to do it. (laughs) And it means giving up that, you know, control over how whatever the baby task is, is being done. But ultimately, there's so many studies that show that this is ultimately really good for the children to have dads, you know, that involved that early on. And it also just sets up patterns that, you know, I have bigger kids now, you have some bigger kids. Like it's, you can see it play out positively and negatively. And, you know, as much as you can do early on to truly share the, you know, yes, the work, but also the heartbreak and the agony and the joy, even the fun stuff of parenting, you know, is really helpful. You're so funny. You talk in the book about marriage and say how you have to prioritize each other and you write, ha, 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 ha. I know, I know. Go (laughs) ahead. Laugh some more. Ha, 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 ha. It's so funny. Um, Can you, so do you feel that prioritizing marriage is just like part and parcel of this whole thing? Yeah. I mean, I will say, so I interviewed a number of single moms in the book and I'm so, so glad I did because they were so clear about the fact that there was no luxury of worrying about asking for help. They knew that in order to be good parents and take care of their children, they had to ask for help of their family, of their friends, of whomever. So I think we need to take some of that back into our marriages for sure. But I also did not want to write a chapter, um, even interviewing other people, and not just from my own perspective, but I didn't want to write a chapter that dictated date night. Because for a lot of new parents, particularly in the fifth trimester, when you're first going back to work, like what does that actually look like? That is, if you're breastfeeding, you know, that is pumping a bottle before you go out. 
spending money on a babysitter when money might already be a little tight at the moment. It's, you know, making time to kind of like clear your brain of the baby stuff and have a lovely meal. Maybe have some wine, but maybe you can't really have some wine because maybe you're nursing and that doesn't work and you've got to wake up really early the next morning or maybe you have to wake up in four hours. Anyway, (laughs) so it just becomes this like added pressure, you know, to suggest that. So I was really relieved when I looked at, um, I kind of became a like, a like a data nerd by looking at everything that I got in from the survey of all these moms. And I found that there was a group of moms who um, reported feeling, um, sorry, who reported fighting more with their partners than they ever had before during the fifth trimester, most they'd ever fought. But there was a subset, a sizable subset of those moms who also said they felt closer than they ever had been to their partners. And I thought, well, oh, that's really interesting. Like, they're disagreeing, but they're doing it in a really productive way that's ultimately beneficial. So what else do they have in common? And I tried mm-hmm. to see, you know, what other factors they had. And there were a couple of things, but namely, they spent time alone with their partners without the baby. But here's the big but. It wasn't copious numbers of hours. It was they spent between one and four hours. So there were moms who, you know, spent five and six and seven hours alone per week with their partners, and they were super duper happy, but that was a really small percentage of women. There were a lot of women who spent less than one hour per week with their partners. Um, There were a good number who spent between one and four, and there was almost no variation in their happiness between them. So what that said to me is, yes, you can go have that like lovely date with the babysitter and the bottle of wine that might stress you out, or it is just as valid to sit across your own dinner table or to sit on the couch and hold hands for an hour and watch your favorite TV show just for a regular weekly TV date that you schedule and and really look forward to. That counts, and that was protective of the relationships for these women, which I found really comforting. That's great. That's good to know. Um, to switch gears for a minute, you talk in such a poignant way about selecting a nanny. Yeah. And you mentioned how <laughs> conflicted you were to leave your son, and you write, in the arms of a woman whose perfume I didn't even know yet, which I thought was just so beautifully written. Mm-hmm. Um, how did it feel to you to leave your kids at home? It felt, it's actually, it was like one of the first titles I came up with of the chapters. It felt like a second cutting of the cord. Mm -hmm. You know, the first one you don't really feel, this one you definitely feel. And, you know, particularly if you've been home on maternity leave with that baby on you, it's, you know, it's a real physical separation to walk away from your baby. I cried the whole way to work. And yet I also felt kind of elated, you know, to be like free in some ways. I'd had a couple practice runs, but probably not enough of just, you know, running to the store or whatever to be away from the baby. Um, It's funny, my kids actually just talked to Jean, um, who's no longer our nanny because they've sort of outgrown her now. We just have after-school babysitters um, uh, the other day, and it was such a wonderful conversation to catch up with her, and she's taking care of a baby now, and so I could hear her in the background with the baby, you know, and who sounded super cute. I love how she's at the park with you, and she's like, go, go run your errands. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Well, she knew knew I needed that test run, and, you know, in the first day, I mean, this is the truth in the book. Like, I actually hugged her goodbye. I was like, I don't even know you, but I'm hugging you, and I'm crying on you. And God, you're taking care of the most important work I've ever done in my life. And the person I love the most in this world is baby. And okay, I guess it's going to be okay. Um, What I found in looking at the research about childcare, and so it's the first chapter of the book because it is for most most parents, it's like the primary thing. Like nothing else works if you haven't figured out who's going to be able to take care of your child, right? So, but it was the last chapter I wrote because I felt Mm. so conflicted about my perspective because Everything about it is so personal. The way you manage, you know, someone, whether it is a daycare, you know, staff at a daycare center or someone in your home or even your mother-in-law, if your mother-in-law is watching your baby during the day, is so 
so similar and so different from the way you manage at work. And it's really, um, it's, it's very emotional work. And so I decided just to be really, again, analytical about it. And I looked at the studies of, you know, what is, what is supposedly better for baby, you know, in terms of the decisions you're making about who's taking care of your child. And there's this massive compendium of 15 years worth of childcare studies. It pulls together hundreds and hundreds of studies to like boil it down to the real takeaway, which is essentially daycare is great can be can be detrimental mostly good home care is great can be detrimental mostly good <laughs> having family at home or even mom taking care of the baby is great but can be detrimental dad same thing and yet if you get to the very 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 end what it says is the one thing that's really genuinely predictive of your child's success being cared for by someone is how comfortable you are with your decision around that child care. So I was like, thank God, because this is, I I had totally procrastinated writing this chapter of the book and even researching it, but that just like shined a light on what I needed to do, which was help women get comfortable with the decisions they were making around child care. Not like making the right decision, but making the comfortable decision. And so that really led my research and led me to interview a lot of people about, you know, what they were looking for when they were touring daycare and, you know, how do they manage, you know, if they have a caregiver in the home, how do they manage that person differently than they do at work and how do they feel about it? And, um, and so that's what the chapter turned into. And I, again, I was very comforted to find out that it's actually, a lot of it is actually within your control, more more than you think. So much parenting advice is like, do what feels right to you. I know, right? But, it, but you have to determine what true. that is, you know? It's so true. Yeah. And by your fourth child, yeah. you know? I mean, <laughs> you probably do. Um, you talk about feeling like you're turning into your mom when you yeah. found yourself sort of freezing bolognese sauce yes. in, in like individual packets in your freezer, which is great. I still individual. do that. You still do that? <laughs> yes, That's I awesome. do. I want you to like send me some of your bolognese because oh, <laughs> we have nothing in the freezer. Um, but I have to just ask, you say you, you put cinnamon in your bolognese sauce. Yeah. It's, it, it's amazing. It's really good. It just sort and of gives it like an earthy kind of slightly dark. I mean, it's like a tablespoon for a huge pot. Yeah. But I don't know. I think it's nice to, to – I always like to own my work. And so it is totally a Mario Batali recipe. But I added my own little – one little it. kick. All right. We'll try that next time <laughs> if I ever cook again. Um, you uh, you talk about laying in bed at night in the book, uh, feeling guilty, feeling yeah. guilty at work and yeah. wrestling with things, and um, finally deciding it was stupid to waste time feeling that way. You just said that's it, feel stupid, and yeah. you say something to all the women in the book like, "How about we stop? <laughs> Let's just stop," which is so great. Um, so tell me, how do we all get rid of our mom guilt? We just we just snap well, our fingers and it's yeah. gone. No, so if you want so clarity nice. on any parenting issue, just write a parenting book because <laughs> if you interview all of these experts and actually see, you know, what a lot of other mothers have in common, it really helps you realize it's not just you, first of all. Um, But so one of the things that I actually splurged on in writing this book is I hired someone to do the transcribing. And she's awesome. Her name is Sarah. She's a single mom who lives outside of Cleveland. And we've become friendly. And I love her pieces. She's just the best. And she taught me a lot um, about sort of Um, thinking just beyond my own experience. Um, But so what I learned when she sent me these transcripts is that the word that jumped off the page universally, like regardless of whether a mom was a single mom, an adoptive mom, Mm -hmm. used a surrogate, had an hourly wage working job, or, you know, 12 degrees, you know, in tenure at Harvard. Like it, it just didn't, it didn't matter. The one thing they all had in common was guilt. But when they described what they felt guilty about, 
they felt guilty about very different things. So some of them felt guilty about um, leaving their baby in the care of someone they felt like was maybe not as capable as they would have been themselves if they'd been home with the baby. Some of them felt guilty for enjoying being at work. Um, you know, you name a topic, somebody felt guilty about it. And I realized pretty quickly that if guilt was just this universal and we were all constantly thinking, guilt sort of implies this idea that you've done something wrong and there was another better choice you could have made. But if everyone is feeling some form of guilt, there is no other better working mom. Like we're all her and we're all just doing our best. And also given all of the research that I had seen by the point I wrote the book about the United States and sort of the culture that we live in and the fact that, you know, it's really, it's not your fault. Like it's a larger, greater cultural problem. I realized that this guilt is sort of a, it's a dangerous cycle and it doesn't actually help progress anything in the workplace. It doesn't progress anything at home. We just feel like we've done something wrong. We've done nothing wrong. We're just trying to do the best we can for our kids. So I really feel like um, Will is now in third grade and he's learning about denominators. Like (laughs) cross it out. It is a common denominator And yes, the feelings you have are real, and the problems that have caused those feelings culturally or in your own specific workplace or home deserve to be tended to and solved. But, like, let's solve them. Let's not just write everything off as mom guilt. And also, you know, like, if we do, like, let's at least talk about dad guilt, too, because they have some, and they might like to talk about it as well. Let's drag them into this mess. Exactly. Just be us. (laughs) Um, it's so great when you wrote in the book about the newfound respect you feel for moms who you had seen at work who weren't even able to change a toner cartridge and yeah. just have them doing things like simultaneously swaddling a baby and yeah. holding a stroller and holding a cup of coffee. Yeah. Um, I actually, I had this idea for a TV show that I'm actually trying to work on with my husband, Kyle, who's yeah. a TV producer yeah. now for Morning Moon Productions, and uh, about being a top mom, like a contest where oh. you, know, you could have oh my gosh. face off yeah. you know, with like, who can hold coffee and fold a stroller <laughs> and you have 30 seconds, go, you know? Because I amazing. feel like one day I was leaving the park and I was holding like 57 bags and pushing a stroller and walking around the street and I was like it's amazing that I can actually yeah. carry this many things like so just that promise I figured me out how to hold all this stuff if so. you do that show everyone gets a trophy <laughs> they're all winners right it's no it's true it's true I mean yeah. it is really no tough mom, yeah but, um anyway um moms obviously have to just pull off so much but yeah. at home and at work yeah you, you shed a nice light on that as well oh thanks um uh, you had a really interesting chapter about um, making yourself look good to feel good mm-hmm. and applying makeup and doing it quickly because obviously a lot of moms don't have time, especially working moms, although lots of moms. Um, <laughs> and you even say if you like your body more, you'll like everyone more. It's true. So, okay, so as you said, I worked at Glamour Magazine and a big part of my job was probably actually less a part of my job than I felt obligated to have a part of my job was looking the part. And to be totally honest, like I, I'm five foot three and like my weight goes up and down a little bit. And I, I was not able to just pull things out of the closet and wear them to a fancy lunch, you know, on, on a moment's notice because I wasn't always sample size. And, uh, and I also edited all of these beauty and fashion pages, mostly to distill the information that came in from the real experts, like the market editors to make it, um, palatable for sort of you know the the mass audience of glamour readers. So I felt like I was coming into it with kind of a slightly phony expertise because I didn't always look so good myself. Um, but I also, like a lot of the women I interviewed, experienced this feeling of, you know, yes, obviously I don't have as much time to spend on myself, but also like I just don't care as much. Like I have such bigger 
right. you know, obligations, but also things that bring me joy right now than looking in the mirror and like tending to my skin. Like, come on, really? Like, I would rather, I would rather make sure my baby doesn't have eczema or cradle cap, you right. know, than like right. deal with myself. However, I really did force myself um, once again to look at the studies. And they do show, you know, for better or for worse, that the way we look affects how we feel about ourselves and that we project that in the workplace. There are actually studies that show that and people's, you know, people respond to what you put out there. So given that and given the rest of the data that shows that women have so much less time to spend on themselves in the morning, it's really about being really incredibly efficient. It's about, you know, sounds basic, but get a haircut that works for you that doesn't, you know, require a lot of work. Get your hair colored in a way that like if you if you're getting it colored to, you know, talk to the colorist and say, I need something that's gonna grow out. I really realistically am gonna get here twice a year. Like how can we make this work so that you're not always stressing about the fact that you aren't going to get it, you know, colored. Um, in terms of your skin, I interviewed an amazing dermatologist, um, Jessica Weiser here in New York, who works with a big practice um, that sees a lot of celebrities. And I expected her to give me, and they have like a whole line of products. I expected her to say, well, you need A, B, C, D, E, F, and G in your yeah. skin, you know, arsenal. No, she said two things. You need to drink a lot of water, particularly if you're breastfeeding. <laughs> I know me too, but oh it's gosh, so true. So bad, yeah. And you need to, um, and you need to wash your face at the end of the day. You need to wash off your makeup. And I was like, Jess, come on, really? That's all. She's like, no, because really the goal is to not need to add, not need to spend a lot of time putting on makeup in the morning. You just need to have your skin feeling good so that it's good bare and you don't need a lot of stuff to be covered up. That said, I really relied on concealer. I definitely think like if you spend money on one thing, make it concealer, make it one that works for your, your skin tone and your the texture that you need. Um, I, I thought of you last night because yeah. I was too tired and I like, yeah, didn't, didn't wash. wash my face and all this stuff. And I thought of your book and you were like, you have to wash away the day. You have to. And I was like, okay, okay, okay. I'm going to wash away yeah. the day. No, I, every, every, every night it is a battle right? in the mirror because it's like, it's like it's the last thing minutes. I want to do. I know. And even if it's one minute, it just feels like, no, just get me to the pillow. <laughs> but, um, but it's really helpful. And then oh, one more thing about um, closet. So a lot of women just are tortured by their closets in the morning going back to work. These are clothes that you may not have worn in more than a year, so you may not be sure that they're stylish, but also they might not fit quite the same way yet. Make a little miniature section within your closet that is your closet within a closet of only the things that fit and are appropriate for your workplace. And so that may be six things. And if you look at those six things and there's not a single pair of pants, then like, okay, <laughs> go buy a pair of pants, but that's all you gotta buy. And then add to it as things start to fit or as the seasons change and things start to become more appropriate, fine, but just don't even bother with everything else. Just choose from that one sort of very pared down section and it will make your morning a lot easier. Excellent advice. Um, I want to make sure to give you enough time to tell us more about the movement of the fifth trimester because oh, sure. now you have all these corporate programs that you're doing. You're giving workshops. I was just telling you I saw my picture in the, <laughs> oh, yeah. in the workshop picture on your on your website, which is so cool from a long time ago or last year. Um, you do workshops. You talk all over. You're really in inspiring change, oh, which is amazing. It's Thank it's you. like just incredible what you've even been able to do in such a short amount of time. Imagine yeah. where this is going. Uh, so tell us. Sure. So my intention all along was to give women the, the tools they need to make real change inside their own workplaces. And that could be allowing you to kind of move up in your career and advocate for policies. It could be being the first parent to ask for something in a workplace and change policy that way. Um, but I also want women to know that it is absolutely 
effective to also just be transparent about motherhood in the workplace because nobody can know that there's a problem to be solved unless they see that there's a problem. So we all have to kind of take a, like a pinky promise, as my kids say, like right. pact with each other to, to really be a little bit more open about this stuff. So that's one thing. And that is, that is really the, the, the core philosophy of the movement and what I sort of, you know, what I hope that other women will catch on to as well in a way that we can all work together to make real progress here since it seems like our government is not doing that for us yet, right? Um, but I also do go into companies, and they have grown. It's a lot of law firms, um, tech firms. I was at Google recently, as you said. I've been in Facebook. Um, American Express had me in. I've done a ton of law firms. Law firms have largely, actually, good um, maternity and paternity leave policies, but they still know they have a retention problem. So that's where I come in and help them on the reentry side mm-hmm. of things to help them figure out culturally, you know, what do people feel like they can and can't use of these benefits and what would help them stay? Because there's so much research that shows that if you support new parents coming back to work from work, coming back from, from parental leave when they come back to work, that you will retain them and you will actually, like, you just have to boil it down to dollars to get people to listen and you will save money. Um, there was a study that was done internationally that showed that if private companies offered, I think it's 16 weeks of paid parental leave and offered six weeks of partially, um, of like part-time work coming back, but paid in full that it would, A, boost the economy because those parents are home during those days and spending money and also not spending as much on childcare for those days. And B, it would save $19 billion in losses of, um, of revenue for companies because they would not lose these employees. Because you're losing also things like what you've invested in their training. And anyways, if you can boil it down to dollars, it really helps. And it's been wonderful to go into these workplaces and feel heard. And also to hear even months later that, you know, that their employees are thanking them for having had me in. Because just my being there kind of says a lot in the first place. It says you're allowed to take a lunch and come listen to this lady who cares about this stuff and we're not afraid to talk about it. And go ahead, ask for what you need. That's great. Thanks. And you also offer all sorts of services for moms. Like, yes, like yeah. Yes, yes. So there's also coaching. And then I do a, you know, obviously the the corporate um, engagements that I do are corporate and they're actually handled through, um, mostly through my, my um, speakers bureau, which is at Penguin Random House. But I also, that allows me to be able to do these more community-focused groups too, which can be a group of 12 moms in somebody's, you know, kitchen, living room. Um, or it could be um, in New York especially. And, and I know a lot, of, a lot of other cities have this too. There are new mom meetup groups that happen. There's one that's Hudson River Park's Mamas that I'm doing um, in a couple weeks. I've um, spoken at Park Slope, pa- Park Slope Parents. And these are amazing communities. And to be able to come together and have this one thing in common, which is that you all have a new baby, yeah. it's amazing how much you expand your sort of bubble of what you think is normal in your industry when you meet people in five other industries. You become a lot more emboldened to think of yourself as a career working mom and not just as like what's normal in my workplace and what what can I can't ask for. You become Mm -hmm. just um, more empowered really. And so what are you going, what's up next for you aside from the 8 million things that are being involved in? I can't, even, I can't even like ask that with a straight face. It's no, it's, I mean, it's ridiculous and I can't answer it like very clearly. So it's, you know, I, I would love to tell you that I know exactly what my next nonfiction book is. I don't. I am writing a novel on the side that you I haven't, are? that I haven't touched in like nine months. So I hope to get back to it this summer. That is the plan for August. Can you 
preview of what it's about? Or oh God, I no? mean, it's probably okay, not. No, 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 it's fine. <laughs> it's like three. It's three interlocking stories that take place in the Hamptons. So go oh, figure. Awesome. Um, there's a you know, there's a dead baby, <laughs> which is probably not very on brand for me. But anyway, it's kind of a mystery. Oh, um, that's cool. But it is an outlet for me, and it's something that allows me to have something creative that I dip in and out of when I can. Um, and I'm really building this company and this movement and. I probably, you know, looking, if you look at my website, when, when you see all of the things that I say that I offer to I businesses, did. it's like, I, I it's know. too many things. I can't believe that you are even managing it all yourself. I'm like, she must have a team of people, but no, it's you doing it. No, it's it. me. I mean, every now and then I will hire a part-time assistant for a little while to help, but yeah. it is, you know, there is this idea that starting your own company as a woman is, you know, like the ideal. And in many ways, it's amazing to be in charge of your own schedule and your own destiny and everything else. But I think that a lot of women, particularly women who are coming back to jobs after having a baby that are maybe not that supportive, think like, oh, I'm going to go hang my own shingle and do my own thing. Well, it is so much work, so much pressure, and it is financially really hard to sustain. So I do a lot of other side gigs to make it work. I just I just finished a three-month-long maternity leave fill-in at Elle magazine for the executive editor, which was awesome because it was like everything I already knew how to do from my old corporate job. Um, but it also gave me a different perspective, you know, of filling in for someone who's on maternity leave and what maternity leave can look like for somebody who operates the way she does. And she was a little bit different in her approach than I had been. And she was great. And it was such a learning experience. Um, but that was like a four day a week gig for, for three months. And, and yet I'm still trying to like do all this other stuff too. So it's a lot. But and it's, yet, and yet I see you. I wouldn't have it any other way. You know? Amazing. <laughs> I do drop off. I don't usually do pick up. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, thank you. I, thanks not only for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books, but honestly, on behalf of all the women who are going back who uh, feel so alone and just having had four kids, I didn't go <laughs> back to an office, but that time of life is such a vulnerable, sensitive time, and the yeah. fact that you're out there helping so many women through it, it's just... amazing so thank you you. thanks for the support Uh, of course no um and thanks to everybody for listening i hope you'll subscribe to moms don't have time to read books and again this has been sponsored by chloe's fruit the cool way to eat fruit chloe's fruit.com thanks so much Mm -hmm.